Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Today we've got here talking about the new Indo-Pacific strategy report that that DOD put out just a few weeks ago at Shangri-La. The report is nothing if not clear, I have to say, on the priority that the United States, DOD especially, gives to the region, our continuing commitment to allies and partners there, and on the nature of the China challenge. We've needed this for a really long time now. I think you have to pre- you have to credit the president. Uh, president Trump is the boss, um, but there's so many people involved in this process. So many people involved in uh, drafting the report, making it happen, working out the compromises that are necessary. Um, and I think, in that regard, a lot of credit has to go to Randy and his team uh, for making this p- possible. Um, it's probably not a coincidence that the lack of clarity in the U.S. approach to the region uh, coincides with uh, uh, Randy's departure from government service uh, at the end of the at the first uh, uh, first Bush administration. As you know now, as I say, he's Assistant Secretary for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, where he's been for a year and a half, uh, but he's had some previous stints in U.S. government service. He served as Chief of Staff and Senior Policy Advisor to Deputy Secretary of State, Uh, in the early 2000s, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Pacific Affairs. Uh, He also worked in the Office of the Secretary of Defense back in the 90s. I should mention his role and leadership at Armitage International and at Project 2049 as well when he was out of government service, and his um, his service in the U.S. Navy, including in the first, uh, first Gulf War. Uh, bottom line is, in or out of government service, uh, Randy knows his way around, and as his friends know very well, his heart and his and his mind are in the right place, and his energy, his Armitage-like energy, is being deployed in the right way. So we're really lucky to have him at DOD, and we're really fortunate to have him here today at the Heritage Foundation to talk about Indo-Pacific strategy. Thank you, Walter, for that kind introduction. It is great to be back here and, and uh, really uh, happy to share the podium with you and, and uh, acknowledge all the great work you continue to do here leading the Asia program. And uh, we, we continue to look to Heritage for uh, being a, a, an engine of ideas and, and uh, approaches and, and a very useful resource to us. So thank you for all the good work you continue to do. Walter's been kind enough over the years to occasionally invite me to speak at, at Heritage, and I'm, I'm appreciative of that. On this particular occasion, I invited myself. I, I uh, called Walter and I said, uh, 
we, we are going to do a, a rollout of our Indo-Pacific strategy report at Shangri-La, but that's an international rollout. We want to have a domestic rollout, and I uh, can't think of any better place to do it than Heritage, knowing the audience you draw, uh, how, how well you do it, convening uh, experts and, and interested parties. And so uh, I invited myself. Fortunately, Walter agreed, and, and so this event came together. But we do consider this the domestic rollout and introduction of our Indo-Pacific strategy report. As I said, the report was introduced first at Shangri-La, and uh, it is... I should point out it's not a new strategy, it's a new strategy report. So um, the, the report itself is drawn from existing strategy documents, our national security strategy and our national defense strategy, both of which, of course, identify the Indo-Pacific as our priority theater. Um, but what this really is is a comprehensive public articulation of DOD's role in implementing the whole of government strategy and, and how we work with our partners and, and uh, consider how we build out relationships to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific. As I said, the region is our priority theater, and I, I don't say a priority theater. I don't say one of our priority theaters. Uh, Walter was kind enough to mention uh, the clarity of this document. Uh, that's part of the clarity is talking about this as the priority theater. Um, it articulates our vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific as laid out in the national security strategy. That consists, of course, of promotion of a rule, rules-based order uh, based on international law, international norms, and constructive participation in regional affairs. The report candidly talks about our strategic competition with China. China, while it has benefited from the free and open order, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, under the leadership of Chairman Xi Jinping, is challenging the rules-based order. And we note we are confronting a, an increasingly assertive and confident China that is willing to accept friction in pursuit of its interest. And we see this manifested in a range of behaviors and activities throughout the Indo-Pacific as they use a toolkit of coercion to include uh, activities such as deploying the advanced weapon systems to militarize disputed areas, using influence operations to interfere in the domestic politics of other nations, which thereby undermines the integrity of those elections and threatens internal stability. They engage in predatory economics and debt-for-sovereignty debt deals, oftentimes enabled by corruption, which takes advantage of the pressing economic needs to structure uh, unequal bargains. And they promote state-sponsored theft of other nations' military and civilian technology. Ultimately, the CCP seeks to expand the reaches of its state-driven model and transform the rules-based order toward one that's more favorable to its authoritarian governance model. And this is very much in counter, uh, a counter to our vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific. And this puts us on a pathway to the strategic competition that we speak about. And this matters because if the CCP's authoritarian approach were to become ascendant, it could weaken regional and global sovereignty of countries and potentially lead to a loss of access to the global commons. It could lead to an erosion of our system of alliances and partnerships. It could undermine important institutions such as ASEAN and its member states. It could lead to a di diminished respect for individual and human rights and potentially normalize the brutal repression underway in places such as Xinjiang and Tibet. And we may find ourselves in a world where artificial features in the global commons become the toll booths uh, 
sovereignty could become the purview of the powerful and debt determines destiny. Uh, just in the past weeks, we see how the region is uh, uh, not what China has called for in its vision of common destiny as demonstrated by the protests in Hong Kong. The people of Hong Kong bravely spoke out against the controversial extradition bill because they knew it could potentially expose them to China's ju justice system and further erode their judicial independence. Our report, of course, speaks of other challenges. China is not alone, uh, certainly, in the challenges we face. Our report talks about Russia's actions to undermine the rules-based international order, the rogue and dangerous behavior of North Korea, the backsliding toward illiberal governance in countries such as Burma and Cambodia, which challenges norms related to human rights, religious freedom, and dignity, the persistent and evolving threats by non-state actors and terrorist organizations, and we've seen uh, far too many attacks, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and South Asia, the emerging threats across a range of new domains, such as space and cyber, and other transnational threats, uh, such as natural disasters and the impact of climate change. Chinese ambitions, however, are particularly pressing. Let me also be clear, as our report points out, a competitive with, uh, strategy with China is not meant to lead us to conflict. A competitive strategy is defined as a deterrence strategy to prevent conflict going forward. In fact, while we compete vigorously with China, our military-to-military -military contacts continue and are aimed at reducing risk and promoting international norms and standards. We will cooperate with China where our interests align while competing within a rules-based framework where our interests diverge. Now, sometimes we're told, in, uh, particularly in, uh, in, in the region, that countries don't want to choose. The region doesn't want to choose between China and the United States. They don't want to be put in an uncomfortable position. And we're clear in the report. We're not asking the region to choose between China and the United States. The strategy itself is inclusive. China is welcome to participate in a free and open Indo-Pacific and the values it entails. We recognize the interdependence of security and economics and that expanding prosperity is vital for all in the region. And the U.S. does not want any country to have to choose or forego positive economic relations with any partner, China included. Rather, the questions we are asking the region are, can you choose respect for sovereignty and independence of all nations, large and small? Can you choose peaceful resolution of disputes? Can you choose free, fair, reciprocal trade and investment, which includes protections for intellectual property? Can you choose to support adherence to international rules and norms, including freedom of navigation? If you could choose those things, all of which we believe are near universal and enduring uh, and inclusive principles and values, you can set aside choosing between the United States and China because you'll be with us in promoting this vision. As Walter stated in a recent article on the report, at the end of the day, quote, it's about defending an order that benefits all states concerned. So we're now in an implementation phase of this strategy to uphold a free and open Indo-Pacific. The department is operationalizing our vision uh, by investing in what we refer to as the three Ps, preparedness, partnerships, and promoting a networked region. When we talk about pre preparedness, we mean having the right capabilities in the right places to respond to crises and to compete with and deter near-peer competitors. As part of our broader department-wide modernization, we are increasing investments in contested domains like cyber and space while preserving our advantages in undersea warfare, tactical aircraft, uh, command and control, and missile defense to ensure the commons remain open to all in the Indo-Pacific. 
As I said, we don't seek conflict, but we know having the capability to prevail is the best way to deter conflicts. We want to ensure that no adversary believes it can successfully achieve political objectives through the use of military force. The second P, as, as uh, stated, is the partnership and, and alliance uh, pillar. Allies and partners are important to our access to the region. We are a, an Asia-Pacific country, but not largely a resident Asia country. So we are very dependent on partners and allies to bring capabilities to bear themselves to help address regional security challenges. And we're dependent on partners and allies for access to the region, basing, diversification and dispersal opportunities. And this all helps us as the region is increasingly contested. In fact, a core US advantage is the strength and diversity of our alliances and partnerships, which are critical to our ability to project power worldwide and to maintain a free and open international order. This is where we find most opportunities for cooperation in the region. Our national defense strategy identifies America's alliances and partnerships as the crucial and durable asymmetric advantage that no other country can match. DOD is looking to strengthen both the treaty alliances we have, uh, including important uh, partners like the Philippines, um, as well as our non-treaty but very significant defense partners such as Singapore, uh, who we work very closely with. Uh, and this list would also include emerging partnerships with countries such as Indonesia, Vietnam, and our major defense partner uh, relationship with India. I might note with the Philippines, uh, we have 280 bilateral defense activities planned for 2019 alone. Our flagship exercise, Balakatan, this year incorporated fifth-generation F-35 fighters for the first time. And we also rotate U.S. troops through the southern Philippines uh, to help our great ally combat terrorism. Singapore is a steadfast U.S. partner in Southeast Asia with a strong commitment to promoting regional and global stability. Singapore is our only major security cooperation partner in the region and provides valuable access to U.S. Navy ships and U.S. military aircraft whose presence contributes to security and stability in the region. In this vein, the department is expanding collaborative planning, prioritizing requests for U.S. military equipment sales to deepen interoperability, and training for high-end combat missions in alliance in alliances, bilateral, and uh, multilateral uh, relationships. In addition, the department is working to uphold our commitments while encouraging allies and partners to moder modernize their own defense capabilities and contribute to collective security, making the security burden lighter and more cost effective. Finally, the department is taking steps to strengthen and, and evolve uh, U.S. alliances and partnerships into a networked security architecture to collectively uphold the international rules-based order, so the third P, promoting a networked region. Challenges in the Indo-Pacific are inherently multilateral and is important to augment our bilateral relationships with multilateral engagements. From our trilateral relationships with Australia, Japan, and South Korea, to our work with Thailand to co-organize the ASEAN-US maritime exercise scheduled for September of this year, we are building an increasingly interconnected Indo-Pacific. Another example is our work in the Indo-Pacific through the Maritime Security Initiative, which enables capacity building efforts in the region. MSI focuses on building partners' maritime capacity and authorizes the provision of training, equipment, supplies, and small-scale construction to our partners such as the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. Uh, we 
aim to enhance our partners' capabilities to sense, share, and contribute to maritime security and maritime domain awareness to create credible regional maritime picture and to retain their freedom of maneuver. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, also plays a key role, and we note in our report that ASEAN centrality is key to the future of uh, stability in Asia. And it's important that ASEAN speaks with one voice to promote a rules-based order and, and international law and norms. The department also continues to cultivate intra-Asia security relationships, some of which uh, we are not formally a part of, to promote the same shared values. Examples would include Indonesia proposing trilateral coordinated operations with Malaysia and the Philippines in the Sulu Sea, India hosting Japan and Australia for its first-ever high-level trilateral dialogue in New Delhi, Sri Lanka outlining a vision to become a regional hub in the Indian Ocean for logistics and commerce, and Singapore's long-standing Maritime Infu Information Fusion Center and India's inaugural Fusion Center to facilitate information sharing and enhancing maritime security. To conclude, the Indo-Pacific is our priority theater, as we state in the document. We are where we belong, and we're investing in the region and with the region. The unfolding long-term strategic competition with China is the def defining challenge of our generation and will likely remain so beyond. We remain committed to our vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, which is affirmative and inclusive of all countries, China included, that support common and enduring principles. The United States, along with our like-minded allies and partners, will remain fully engaged in the Indo-Pacific. We'll continue to work closely with allies and partners and regional institutions such as ASEAN to ensure that the rules-based international order, not coercion or force, dictates the future of this vital region. With that, I look forward to hearing your thoughts uh, and welcome your questions, comments, or criticisms. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was that was a terrific rundown of of the report. I was um, I was particularly um, interested to hear you emphasize ASEAN centrality, uh, and the reason less so to do with ASEAN centrality itself than the fact that there's so much continuity in the, in the report. Um, I have literally gone around the world trying to explain to people that we're doing some good new things here that were long overdue, the, the clarity on China and some other issues, but there is so much continuity uh, with the past. And if you could pull yourself away from your Twitter account for a while, and just actually read the documents that come out of the meetings with the leaders, come out of the Shangri-La, come out of the ASEAN meetings, you'll see that, that sort of continuity. So I, I really, I, I, I think that's really worth noting. Um, the, the question I had for you uh, right out of the box sort of drills down a little bit, and that's um, about the quadrilateral security dialogue. You, it's mentioned in the report. Um, and we've had what, three meetings to date. Uh, I guess it's, it's a State Department initiative. But I imagine, ultimately, a lot of the operationalizing of that would come through DOD. And so I wonder if you could just comment on what you think the future implications are for the Quad uh, for real cooperation uh, between the four partners. Sure, thanks. Well, in your introduction, you mentioned my previous service at the State Department. For me, the Quad was actually born on December 26, 2004. That was the date of the great uh, tsunami in um, Southeast Asia. And the four countries that, that banded together, pulled together to respond with humanitarian relief 
were the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. And the reason was because a combination of shared values, we felt an obligation and an and interest to respond. We had capabilities to bring to bear uh, relatively quickly, uh, and we could work with one another. And so ultimately other countries joined in contributing to the relief efforts, but it was those four that were able to move out quickly. That foundation has not changed, it remains. We largely share values, we have the capabilities we have, and we can work with one another and we can act. Um, through the history of the Quad, there's been uh, fits and starts and, and perturbations along the way. I think we're at a place now where we are working well on the foreign ministry, State Department side. A lot of the discussions involve coordination of development assistance, and now we can have an alternative to things like Belt and Road. Uh, but you're correct that ultimately we would like to enhance the defense and security side of things. I think we'll have to take that at a pace and scope that our partners can can uh, handle as well, and, and we're talking about that um, uh, when we have the opportunities. Having just praised the Quad and, and all the, the, the reasons we're able to come together quickly when there's a, a, a real need, I would also add there's nothing necessarily magic about a quad. It could be a quint. Uh, it could be a, a, another type of minilateral um, uh, type grouping. Um, we've done things with the French, for example, which makes it sort of a quint. And that's fine, too. It's, th this is not meant to be an exclusive arrangement, but we do think the foundation that those four share uh, uh, really does position us for cooperation going forward. So we'll see. Yeah, the, um, you mentioned the... Europeans, in this case the French, um, just by coincidence, we also did our annual uh, quad meeting. We do something every year at Heritage called the Quad Plus, where we have think tanks from all four countries. This year we did it in, in Australia, and we included the French in, in that. Uh, and it was a very positive uh, exchange. I think they've got a lot to offer. I think the UK does too, and, uh, and we hope to bring the UK in, in next year to have the same sort of uh, um, conversation. I want to open it to questions because I know there must be questions, but let, let me ask, let me ask uh, one more before I do that so everyone can sort of think a little bit. Um, we're going to listen to Ambassador Mapuri and uh, Romaldez here shortly on, on their reaction, um, but I wonder what kind of feedback are you getting from our partners and our, and our allies to date, especially in Northeast Asia, since we'll hear in a second on Southeast Asia. From partners and allies, very positive. Um, uh, there are some who I think still have concerns about that choice being forced on them. And as we've had an opportunity uh, to clarify and, and expand the discussion, I think those anxieties are largely assuaged. Um, but you know, the, the report comes after a lot of work with our allies and partners in developing the Indo-Pacific framework that the White House put together. Uh, my, my great colleague Matt Pottinger has led several efforts where we brought diplomats and representatives in to talk about our respective Indo-Pacific visions and that led to the Indo-Pacific strategy that the White House uh, formulated. So we, we like to think we had buy-in on the front end even before the document was written and released. But since its release, uh, the, the, the uh, feedback has been largely positive and, and they do note that it's based on enduring principles that they can support. Uh, the other thing the document does is, you know, we, we, we get asked a lot, okay, free and open Indo-Pacific, we sort of like it as a concept. What do you want us to do? What, what can you do? And so in, in the end of the document, we answer that in a very specific way. Uh, countries should invest for their own defenses and protect their own sovereignty. They should uh, 
uh, look to be networked, and so when they make investments, think about interoperability, think about networking for the security challenges, uh, support of free and open order and international law where appropriate. And so we go through all those things, and I think the, the value of the document and the discussions that have followed, and hopefully after uh, today's discussion, uh, which you're streaming, um, people have a, a comfort level with not only the concepts, but an understanding of, of what we would like to do as partners going forward. That's good, yeah. Process is important. Uh, uh, let me start in the back with John Zell. Thank you, Walter. Um, good to see you, Mr. Secretary. Um, I have two questions. Number one, um, what is Taiwan's role in the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy with the uh, um, increasing cooperation between Taiwan and the United States, particularly in the uh, security area? Um, are there any plans on your part to probably upgrade Taiwan to the status of a uh, non-NATO ally? That's the first question. Number two, what is your comment on press reports that uh, the, uh, the proposed uh, uh, Taiwan arms sales valued at about $2 billion um, are put on hold for fear of interfering with uh, President Trump's meeting with President Xi? Thank you. Taiwan is a part of our Indo-Pacific strategy, and we, in the report, included in a grouping of important security partners, uh, Singapore, Mongolia, New Zealand, and Taiwan. It might sound like sort of an odd grouping, but these are important security partners of the United States beyond our treaty allies, who all, we believe, share values and have contributions to make to the upholding the free and open order. I think due to Taiwan's own security challenges, uh, the the way Taiwan supports this uh, strategy, first and foremost, is investment in its own defense, uh, implementation of the overall defense concept, so it becomes uh, an unattractive idea to the Chinese that they might try to take military means to solve uh, what they see as a dispute uh, over Taiwan's status. Um, so we're working very closely with Taiwan as a security partner under the Taiwan Relations Act to make sure that Taiwan does have those capabilities. I, d I don't have anything particular to say about your specific question about that uh, non-NATO uh, allied status, uh, but I can tell you that our, our security partnership is very strong and we very much have an eye on the evolving threat. Um, there was a second question. Sales. Arm sales. Um, the, uh, the security environment is going to drive our decision making. Um, Taiwan is facing more pressure from China, not only a military buildup, but military activities, uh, robust exercising, crossing the center line with flights, et cetera. And so based on the law, which says uh, we'll make decisions based on the threat assessment, uh, we will play that role of making weapon systems available to Taiwan. I don't have anything to say on the specific timing of announcements or releases. Um, we have talked about a more normal process, making Taiwan a normal FMS partner, foreign military sales partner, and we're committed to that. So the uh, the idea that things will be bundled and bunched and, and waiting for uh, political openings to, to do things, uh, we're setting that aside and we're going to treat Taiwan as a normal security assistance partner. Uh, Jeannie. You could just, wouldn't mind, get to the question relatively quickly. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. Um, thank you for presenting the strategy. You emphasize the values and the rules 
in particular the case of the South China Sea. The past weekend, the ASEAN have met, and there is an effort to push forward the COC, the Code of Conduct. There is concern that China will cause and make the COC in China's favor to block off other international interference. So the question is both for you and for Mr. Lohman regarding the UNCLOS. Since this is the Heritage Foundation, would you recommend our Senate ratify the UNCLOS to support the order, the rule base, not only for the South China Sea, the Indo-Pacific, but also for the Alaska in the future and many other things. Um, for the Secretary, if there is an UNCLOS to form and passed, and if we able to, if Vietnam and Thailand and ASEAN was able to stand firm on the international laws, would the U.S. and the Quas and the international community come in if there is violation of the COC? And especially the PCA verdict had clearly stated China had no rights in that region. And up until recently, China continued to harass the fishermen in the Philippines and had done many other things. Is there anything that we can do to at least saying that we are enforcing the law? Thank you. Perfect. Uh, I have no trouble believing that China will try to shape the code of conduct to suit its interests, and, and uh, I think we have a watchful eye uh, toward that. Um, we're not opposed to a code of conduct that does what uh, these efforts should do, which is to promote safety of operations, uphold international law, and uh, make the operating environment uh, a welcoming one for all the activities that should take place in the global commons. Um, <clears throat> again, I, I am suspicious of China's motives, but we have confidence in our ASEAN partners uh, to handle that through negotiations. As long as the resulting document is not inconsistent with international law, then, then we'll be a party that respects and honors it as long as it doesn't infringe upon our rights as a maritime nation to uh, enjoy the benefits of, 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 of fly sailing and operating where international law allows. I don't know about a, a particular enforcement mechanism. Um, some of the parties included in this are treaty allies, so I think in some cases there are clear security commitments. COC or no COC. In the case of being an enforcer or an outside enforcer, I think we would take the view that international law that exists is uh, how we would view uh, violations or, or uh, uh, challenges to international law. Well, I'm not going to respond long because I'd rather reserve the time for, for questions. Um, but uh, it's interesting because you've been asking me that same question for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, this very short answer is no. That's it. Uh, <laughs> um, other questions right here. Hi, um, Lars Ellingman with Foreign Policy. Thanks for being here, sir. I was wondering, um, given just given the dependence of many of our Asian allies on the flow of oil through the Persian Gulf, I'm wondering if you see any opportunities uh, for our Asian allies to work together with us and um, and our Gulf allies and what uh, to secure that flow of oil. So I'm wondering uh, what opportunities you see there and perhaps what kind of discussions are going on right now between you and our allies um, on things that they can p potentially do. Well, 
Part of our effort has been focused on the pressure campaign on Iran, and uh, some of our allies have had to make some hard choices and, and have chosen, in fact, to curtail uh, purchase of oil from Iran, which we think is a helpful thing to put pressure on that regime. Um, if it came down to operational needs and, and who could bring capabilities to bear, um, you know, that's something that would be an individual sovereign decision on the part of our partners and allies that are primarily focused on Indo-Pacific challenges. But I think we have a good history where contributions have been made in the past. Uh, several of the countries made major contributions in Iraq, for example, which I understand is, is not what you're asking about. But um, uh, at one time, South Korea had the third largest contribution in, in Iraq after the U.S. and the U.K. So what I'm suggesting is when there are out-of-area challenges, our allies in the region have responded in the past. So we'll see if those types of needs arise uh, based on how things go with Iran and the security situation uh, in that region. Um, but I think you rightfully point out the interests are shared among uh, many of our important Asian partners given their dependence on that region for energy. Our discussions are primarily focused on the pressure campaign and um, we uh, uh, we were, of course, very attentive to the security environment and how those challenges might evolve, and we're in consultation with our allies about that, but I don't think we've gone to the level of detail on operational requirements that you're asking about. We've got a lot of questions. Let me, um, let me take three, and maybe there's some themes here that uh, Randy can respond to so we get as many as possible. Chair Chang with United Day News Group Taiwan. I have a question about U.S. and Japan. Um, Trump, President Trump again questioned about the U.S.-Japan military cooperation. Today he said if U.S. is attacked, they can watch on a Sony television. Um, I just wonder, uh, do you expect the Trump administration to make any changes on U.S.-Japan cooperation, such as ending the defense treaty? Thank you. Uh, other two more. Yeah, right behind. Hi, um, I'm a reporter from Shenzhen Media Group. Thanks for being here. So you mentioned that Chinese is now exclusive from the American's Indo-Pacific strategy. So, so far, what views uh, do you think in which the two countries can engage into cooperation? Thank you. Gentlemen, yes. So, uh, Mike, uh, my name is Sean Ling from uh, Sound Hope Radio. So last week, uh, the Cyber Command and the Central Command jointly uh, initiated a mission against the Iranian Revolution Guard and the cyber, cyber missions, right? So I'm just wondering, since the China probably constitutes the majority of the advanced persistence grab a threat on the Internet, so will you expect more offensive action, action against China's advanced persistence threat on the Internet? Okay, great. Thank you. You may have Take to help, help remind me of I, the, the first question was about uh, Japan, Japan and the alliance. Uh, President Trump has spoken uh, repeatedly about the strength of the U.S.-Japan relationship, his close relationship with Prime Minister Abe. Uh, I think the relationship is, is, is at a near uh, high point, uh, particularly on the defense and security side. Um, Japan's uh, own sovereign decisions to reinterpret its constitution and its investment in new capabilities 
mean that we'll have a more capable alliance partner and we can do more things. Prime Minister Abe has talked about a proactive approach to regional security. And so the alliance will be able to do more and be more capable over time. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, second question was about China and the U.S. and what we could do with one another. Um, you, you may have seen reports from Singapore that then acting Secretary Shanahan uh, gave a gift to Minister of Defense Wei. He said, I have a gift for you. And Ms. Minister Wei, his face sort of lit up. He was very excited. And uh, then acting Secretary Shanahan handed him a picture book of North Korean ship-to-ship uh, -ship transfers that were taking place in Chinese territorial waters. <laughs> and the point is, if uh, China is going to uh, be good in not only word but deed, uh, they have voted for these sanctions. They've rhetorically said they will enforce the sanctions. But there's a lot of uh, sanctions evasion, sanction evasion activities going on in China's territorial waters. We want to be a partner with China on this. We can, we can trade uh, information about uh, uh, high-frequency violating vessels. We can track and hand off vessels as, as we watch them go from international waters to Chinese territorial waters. Um, but we need to have a clear understanding if China is going to allow this to happen in territorial waters, then we're going to have a lot more trouble putting pressure on the North Korean regime and enforcing these sanctions. Um, so that's one area. Uh, obviously, in our direct contacts with China, we focus a lot on risk reduction and confidence building, and uh, we can probably do better there as well. The third question was... China cyber. China cyber. So the Department of Defense released a cyber strategy uh, report, um, and it talks about not only how we can strengthen defenses, how we can, uh, our own defenses of our own networks and our critical infrastructure, how we can partner with like-minded countries who themselves are facing persistent threats. Uh, but it also talks about the development of new capabilities that would have uh, deterrent quality. And I'll, I'll uh, leave it to the cyber experts to define that more fully, but um, deterrence generally involves conveying in a convincing way to uh, another country that you have capabilities that will allow you to prevail and, and um, win in any kind of contested environment. Um, we do have, of course, an election approaching in Taiwan, and, and there's concern about uh, the use of cyber tools to impact and, and um, influence that election. And so we have said publicly we will support Taiwan in ensuring it has a, a free, fair, um, uh, non-contested, not from the outside, I should say, uh, election, and that uh, the, the results are not impacted by outside attempts uh, to use cyber. Do you have any um, judgment or assessment on the state of Taiwan's cyber defenses? How ready are they for this? Well, if I, when I look across the Indo-Pacific region, I see that Taiwan is a country that has faced these persistent intrusions, attacks uh, for longer period than any other country. So Taiwan has a lot of experience and has been thinking about these problems for a long time. It's also um, a place that has a very highly skilled uh, uh, technology sector and uh, including in, in uh, some of these areas that are related to cyber capabilities. So I, I put them at a, at a very high uh, place in the region. However, the, the threat, you know, playing offense, this is a domain where playing offense is, is uh, the, the, the advantage goes to the offense because uh, if you're persistent in your attacks, 
you only have to be right a couple times to, to really have an impact and, and influence things. And you have to be right on the defense every time to protect your, your infrastructure. Right. Okay, uh, last round of three questions, uh, right here. Thank you, Amanda Macias from CNBC. So I have two financial questions for you. Uh, the first, in your opening remarks, you said China's toolkit of coercion, and you listed predatory economics and IP theft. It's the basis of the ongoing trade war. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe seeing that spill into your AOR. Uh, second question is about China's economic ambitions and the fact that they finance a lot of our U.S. deficit. Um, so how does that in your calculus play into your strategy. Can you just repeat the first question very briefly? Yes, first question was the basis of the Chinese trade war is a lot of what you described in the Indo-PACOM strategy. Um, and if you could just discuss if you see any of that spilling into your discussions with partners as the two largest economies fight each other. In the very back here. Liu Liu, VOA. Um, Secretary, uh, Shriver, earlier in the prepared statement, you identified the Indo-Pacific uh, as the priority theater. Uh, yet we have a rising tension in Middle East, uh, specifically with Iran. Are you confident the United States military can handle a possible conflict with Iran at the same time, focusing on the China threat? Thanks. Hi, my name is Sangmin. I'm from the Radio Free Asia. Uh, it is important there has been behind this meeting between DPRK US to restart the working level uh, negotiation to prepare the third summit. So can you elaborate on that meeting? And second one is that you mentioned about uh, UN sanctions are enforcement to the, against North Korea and illicit ship to transfer. And the U.S. Coast Guards dispatched their color to the strengthen to the West Pacific area. So do you have any update about that activity in the West Pacific area? Update about activity of your operation to, uh, against uh, North Korea illicit ship to ship transfer. Okay, well, the first... Start with the yeah. last one. Why don't you start with the... Okay. Um, so we continue this effort th primarily through Indo-Pacific Command, and uh, we have a coordination cell that Indo-Pacific Command uh, runs, but it's the assets are, are largely uh, based in Japan, so Japan is a very vital partner in this. And we are engaged in trying to disrupt uh, the sh what's primarily coal coming out of North Korea and petroleum going into North Korea through the means of illicit illegal ship-to-ship -ship transfers. Um, oftentimes a, a hail and query is enough and, and the activity will, will stop and the ships will make a run for it. Uh, in some cases uh, a photo is as good as uh, a disruption because if we have a whole number we can learn about who's insuring the vessel, who's financing the operation, details about the crew. So all of that is going on, and we have uh, growing contributions, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, the French. Uh, so uh, the, it's a very robust effort. But again, um, we need more help from the Chinese, uh, particularly as the North Koreans evolve in their own tactics and moving some of this operation into uh, Chinese territorial waters. Uh, we need the Chinese to do more there. So returning now to the first set of questions. So um, 
I, I have uh, colleagues who deal with the trade matters and, and the economic matters. Um, my observation is the approach that this administration has taken is the result of uh, decades of un unfair uh, trade practices and, and economic practices on the part of the Chinese. Uh, everything from theft of intellectual property to opaque, non-transparent uh, regulatory environment to um, uh, the, the um, uh, theft of intellectual property, as I mentioned. Um, so currency valuation, there's all kinds of things that have been going on, not for a year or two or five, but decades. And so this administration has taken a more confrontational approach. I think the uh, president has been clear. He would like to work this out and do a deal, and I think this will be a, a major topic of discussion in Osaka. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, we're asking hard things of the Chinese uh, because uh, the kinds of changes they need to make to really level the playing field uh, do involve some structural reform and do involve some internal uh, mechanisms for real implementation and enforcement. We've made deals with the Chinese in the past and they haven't always honored uh, those the conditions of those deals and I don't, I, mean, I don't think we want to repeat those, those mistakes. Um, to the extent it, it spills into our discussions on the security side, uh, I think our partners and allies understand that uh, many things have been tried in the past, and um, we, we are right to take these actions to try to level the playing field that everyone can ultimately benefit from if China does reform. I think countries also see potential opportunities, quite frankly. Um, the marketplace in China has been a frustrating one for uh, many countries who invest there, uh, and many countries uh, want to bring that investment home or, or diversify. And so the interesting part of that discussion is it's leading to not just sort of how we manage a problem with China, but what opportunities may present themselves in our uh, other partnerships. On the security side, uh, I think we're largely uh, insulated in a sense because, again, the security challenges have been so persistent. They're growing. Um, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, but these are things we've been working on for a long time, and I haven't seen a, a particular impact or say that the, the trade dispute has made this better or worse. Uh, I think uh, we're largely on a, a particular course because of choices that China has made along the way, including the militarization of the South China Sea. Um, second part Last of one was, uh, well, it was about the deficit. Oh, the deficit. Debt. Yeah, but I think you covered that yeah. in terms of economic issues. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, the, the Chinese are making this investment not as a favor to us. Uh, it's the best place for them to put uh, the uh, National Reserve's holdings that they have. Um, if they choose otherwise, they've got to find a way to, they, they got to put that money somewhere. And so there'd be a, a transition, transactional cost for them. There's There's all kinds of problems it would create for them. So this is not a not necessarily as it's often described as some great lever China has or, or leverage that China holds over us. This is developed because it's been mutually beneficial. If China decides to, to see it as a tool that they want to use and, and wants to uh, pay that transaction cost and invest elsewhere, uh, I'm confident we have other ways to um, uh, deal with our deficit. Uh, the best way would be to end our deficit and deal with our debt. But uh, we, we have uh, other ways to, to uh, deal with that. And the last question was It was on, about Iran. Can we fight two wars at once well, if it came to it? Well, the president's been very clear. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want a war with Iran. He doesn't want to fight Iran. Um, the... Uh, the tensions are, I think, a result of the fact that our pressure campaign is working. 
They do feel real economic pressure. Other uh, previous comment, other allies are coming along and themselves reducing the import of oil, so they're feeling real pressure. Uh, but we don't want a war. The president's been clear on that. And so our, our hope is we don't have to make that trade-off. But if we find ourselves in a position where we have to take action, yes, I'm confident we can, we can do and manage both. Well, thank you, Randy, for making us the site of your rollout. This has been very, uh, very enlightening and, and, and overdue. Glad to see such a robust report and, and discussion of it here. And there's a lot more to talk about, I'm sure, in the months and, and the couple of years to come, and maybe beyond that. So uh, thank you very much for coming here. Please join me in thanking Assistant Secretary Travis for joining us. Well, now I'd like to ask Ambassador Mipuri and Rumaldez to come up to the stage for discussion. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we're doing this a little bit differently than we, we have in the past, which I'm hoping will lend itself to um, uh, a more conversational tone than we might have with a desk in front of us and, and, uh, and papers on top of it. Um, but let me, by brief introduction here, recognize Ambassador uh, Jose Romaldez, um, otherwise affectionately known as Babe. Um, he's been here in Washington for a couple of years, and I have to say, one of the most anticipated ambassadors from Southeast Asia in the last few years. Uh, we, we had a little bit of a uh, a rough start to the Duterte administration and the beginning of the relationship uh, there as it was rechristened in that administration. We were all eagerly awaiting your arrival, largely because we knew you were a great guy and some of us knew you, uh, knew you already, uh, but you were also the president's envoy, special envoy to the United States before coming here as ambassador. And so we knew that you had the confidence of the, of the president, of President Duterte, and that uh, you could help write the relationship. And I will say, uh, in the course of your, your tenure and that of our Ambassador Sun Kim in, in uh, Manila, we have, I think, uh, stabilized the relationship, and that, that's due in large part to your hard work and your, and your very accomplished, fine team that you have. We also have Ambassador Ashok Mapuri, Ambassador from Singapore to the United States. Ashok has a long, distinguished career in the, in the Foreign Service. Um, he's been around a long time in positions of very high authority, uh, ambassador to Indonesia, which, as you can imagine, is a, is a very important job in, in Singapore, as well as high commissioner to Malaysia, which is another really important, uh, I, they're probably the three most important jobs you can have in the Foreign Service, at least in terms of ambassadorships, U.S., uh, Malaysia, and, and Indonesia. And he was high commissioner to Australia as well. So um, I really look forward to him bringing some of that expertise uh, that he's gathered over, those, over the years and insight to, to reflect on our new strategy for the Indo-Pacific as, as Secretary Shriver laid out. Um, the first question I wanted to put to each of you, and I've got a couple questions, and I, I, like with Randy, I would like to open it up. Um, the messaging around China in the, in the report, and Randy was careful to also point out that he's not asking anyone to choose. The report doesn't do that uh, and, and laid out the decision, decisions that need to be made on um, the region's posture and, and, and response to China. And he laid it out in, a, in somewhat of a different way. Um, how is that going over in your respective countries, that is the U.S. approach to China, as laid out in the report or 
or otherwise, as, as contrasted with the report. But how is that going out over in your capitals? Um, how do you expect the U.S. approach to China to play out in your political uh, environments? And then also in the region, uh, more generally, how do you think it plays? Why don't I start with you, Ambassador McCurry? Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me here. Um, you know, the way, first I must credit Assistant Secretary Shriver and his team for putting out a very comprehensive report. As you said earlier, there's a huge element of continuity in what they do in terms of looking at the Indo-Pacific region, Asia-Pacific region, whichever you want to call it, through the different administrations. And I think that's very helpful because by putting this together, and we are in the sort of third year of the current administration, I think it's timely to have put all this together comprehensively so that countries can start to address some of these issues. Now, China becomes a very important point to focus in the report, but as a defense organization, I, if you look at the report, there's also references to dealing with Russia, North Korea, and other threats. So they have identified quite rightly as a defense organization that you need to prepare for various kinds of threats. Uh, if you're looking at the Indo-Pacific region. China, of course, is the, the key point that he raised just now, and you've asked that question about that. At the Shangri-La Dialogue, where the Indo-Pacific report was rolled out, my prime minister gave the keynote address. And in his keynote address, he looked at U.S.-China relations as probably the most uh, anxiety-causing issue for the whole region. And that's where that uncertainty comes in for the region, because for the region, we've always enjoyed a very long-term presence of the United States. They have been there since the Second World War. And we also benefit from a very large economic presence of China, geographical and economic presence. So that the region of Southeast Asia in particular is in that confluence of the competition between the U.S. and China. So our view is really how do you build up trust between the two? And he did speak, since Secretary Shriver did speak of looking at opportunities where they can continue to work with China, because it is really trying to get that strategic back, trust back between the two countries. Whether it's on the trade issue, but it's also going beyond the trade issue, there are many areas in which there are some uncertainties, whether it's competitive, whether it's a, a strong rivalry, that need to be addressed. So the region looks at this almost with some concern. The ASEAN leaders just met over the weekend in Bangkok. The issue kept, com kept coming up again about how do we manage in a world of U.S.-China competition. And in a way, we want them to resolve these issues, whether through trust, whether some trade deal, so that we can get back onto the main focus of ASEAN and the region of economic cooperation and development. It's too bad that so much of the discussion has boiled down almost ad nauseum to this question of which side to choose. <laughs> and it's been this way actually for years. It goes back to your predecessor's tenure in, in Washington. We had the same question, different administration, um, uh, same question. But, but doesn't it really boil down to a series of decisions that you make? I mean, yeah, you can say on the one hand, we're not asking you to make a choice. And that's true. We're not asking a big geopolitical choice, which side do you want to be on? But there are a series, you know, dozens of questions that cumulatively add up to you making a choice, right? And so does that figure into the way you approach each issue, say whether it's 5G or the trade issue or uh, new deployment of US uh, forces, that sort of thing? Well, yes and no. Yes, cumulatively you have to make up choices and 
everyday people look at the balance and say, okay, country X is making a particular choice in that particular direction because that's what the balance looks like and country Y is making a choice in that particular direction. But that dynamic changes as well. As new issues come up, the technology issue, for example, that's really a relatively new issue in terms of the way people are addressing US-China competition. It was For a long time, we looked at technology as almost an integrative force. Supply chains were linked. Uh, technology and innovation was taking place all across the Pacific. It was going around. And once you looked at it in that fashion, that gave you a process of integration. Suddenly today, it's become almost a, a, a binary choice. You either pick one or the other. Researchers from one country are not allowed in the other country and vice versa. That's a world in which we're, we're sort of starting to come to grips with that. How do we deal with this world in which, for many of us in Southeast Asia, we have Chinese technology companies, we have American technology companies. We've always welcomed them. They bring a huge value to the region. And it's, even in these areas, we don't want to make choices because we see space for both of them to operate. And so I think that it's understanding that this geopolitical dynamic has shifted fairly dramatically. Uh, the question's always been asked of the U U.S. always asking its partners, whether it was during the Cold War with the Soviet Union or subsequently, which side are you on? The countries don't want to make that choice. They will have to pick in certain areas, some areas of uh, cooperation. But really, it's coming back to can we build an integrated region in which there can be cooperation, in which economic cooperation can take place? I think that's the key that we want to come back to, even as there's always going to be security and strategic competition between the great powers. Well, uh, in our case, well, the Philippines welcomes the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States. Uh, but mainly, we feel that uh, both uh, China and the United States will have to come to terms in, in, in what is happening uh, in the Asian region. So we, we see the ASEAN as the central the centrality. ASEAN centrality is very important, and we see that as the only uh, mechanism where we can have both China and the United States uh, be, have a dialogue and, and, and continue to, to look at this part of the world as an important uh, economic uh, powerhouse, if, if you want to call it that. And so, in our view, the ASEAN is the place where we can uh, try to be the center of uh, having both the United States and China uh, be able to cooperate in many of the issues. At the same time, of course, uh, we, 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 are, we welcome uh, the continued presence of the United States in that part of the world to make sure that there is peace and stability in the region. Is there any concern about the tone of the United States approach to the Chinese, whether it's the very uh, clear, direct tone of this report, um, or whether it's the less disciplined utterances that come out of the administration as regards China? Is there any concern about the, the, the drift in U.S. policy, uh, especially the tone on China in, in Manila? Well, in our case, again, we feel that uh, the United States uh, needs to be able to now come out and be a little, uh, be, be, be clear on exactly how they feel about the situation. As, as you know, the, what happened in the past was uh, it was neither here nor there, and that's the reason why uh, the Philippines had to go on its own to be able to, uh, to reach out to China and be able to have a dialogue. There was absolutely zero dialogue when we were being asked, uh, and with this part of the United States, to bring this case of the West Philippine Sea and the, uh, the UNCLOS. 
but now we feel that uh, this is an opportunity for both uh, the United States and the Philippines and China to be able to, uh, to communicate in, in all of these issues surrounding that area. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, very early on in President Duterte's uh, administration, uh, President Trump actually called uh, President Duterte and asked him if he could talk to uh, uh, the Chinese president uh, regarding the North Korean problem, and, and we were very happy to do that. So again, this is, this is uh, the role that uh, we see ASEAN uh, as a region and as a, as a group that can really be the central point in trying to, nobody wants to have a confrontation. I don't think the United States, China, or anyone would like to see that. And so we see the ASEAN group to be the central point in making sure that that happens. Yeah, I have to say, I, I think that uh, the ASEAN region has been the most um, realistic and constructive in terms of interpreting Washington over the last couple of years. Uh, say, in contrast to our friends in Europe who respond to every tweet, every news appearance, you know, in sometimes, I have to say, almost in hysterical fashion, but, but ASEAN seems at some level to, the, the ASEAN members seem to get it at some level and, and are actually looking at a record of performance in what's happening uh, with more discipline, I think, than some of our other. Maybe it's a 12-hour time difference. Maybe. So all <laughs> you have time to think about it. You have time to, yeah, may, that may be. We get a microphone for you. Please identify yourself. If you can. Uh, Josh Nacht, uh, International Religious Freedom Office at the State Department. Um, in while you know the bulk of this report focuses on U.S. engagement and strategic competition with China, some of this does focus on other issues like counterterrorism and CVE. Um, you know, the Philippines is obviously an area where. Uh, you know, both the U.S. and the Philippines are engaged in this issue. I know that Singapore has provided some assistance as well. I wonder if either of you could share your thoughts on both at a, in, when it comes to social and economic policy as well as in military engagements where you see this issue, both CVE and counterterrorism, moving in the near future. So, so specifically on uh, counterterrorism security type yeah, issue. and how you see U.S. engagement playing a role with this. Ambassador mm -hmm. uh, Malta, well, you're central uh, to that in some ways. Yes, and uh, well, as you know, we, we just um, uh, had a, a situation in, in the south of the Philippines, in Marawi, where we worked with the United States, uh, we had that, the cooperation that we had with the United States and being able to clear out that area of, of the uh, ISIS-leading group uh, in, in that part. Uh, but more importantly now is the rehabilitation of the of the place, and and this is where the social part comes in, and we need um, obviously uh, the expertise of many other nations who've come to forward to uh, see whether they can uh, participate in this. Uh, in particular, Japan has also offered to to help in the rehabilitation of the area and making sure that these types of uh, uh, terrorist activities uh, will not happen, but going into the ground, meaning to say the, the, the young people there in, in that part uh, need to be able to be uh, sort of like undoctrinated because they've already been, uh, as we all know how the um, these groups uh, operate and, and they, they indoctrinate uh, the young people. So that's, 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 that's the way we, we see uh, the cooperation that we have uh, with the United States and, and, and the other countries. 
You know, this is a very important issue for the region. It's a live issue. The recent Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka remind us of that risk of radicalization and how we deal with it, even though Sri Lanka is just outside of Southeast Asia, whether it's Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines. It's a constant issue that, and in this, I must credit the United States for really taking the lead in dealing with the issue in the Middle East, the sort of counter-ISIL campaigns, forming that coalition. Singapore joined that coalition in that. And now we're facing that new challenge of people that have been radicalized that are returning back to Southeast Asia. And again, I think cooperating with the United States is quite critical as we ourselves in the region organize ourselves better in terms of information sharing around this, what we can do together, where we can identify people who have been radicalized and are coming back. And as Ambassador Romalda says, that whole campaign of de-radicalization is quite critical as well, as you have these people coming back. And this is an ongoing issue. It's not just ISIS. Before that, we went back to Al-Qaeda uh, dealing with these issues. It's a constant challenge in that region that we all the countries have to deal with together. Can I ask you, um, this gets away a little bit from, well, gets away a lot from what we're talking about in terms of security and uh, the DOD re report. If we just stipulate that, okay, the report is good, it's very positive from my perspective, I've written on this publicly so you can see my comments, I, I, think, it's, I think it's great with a couple uh, tweaks here and there. Um, it recommits the United States to the region. It, it, outlines, the, it outlines the U.S. Uh, priority there, everything else. That's all good. Uh, what I find myself trying to explain to people quite often is that as good as that is, that is not even half of the battle in Southeast Asia in terms of priorities for the region, that security issues are important and they they. they are important limitations in some ways, but that the name of the game in Southeast Asia is really on the economic side. Uh, one, I wonder if you agree with that. I assume you do, but I wonder if you, maybe you could you could give your your view on that. But but more generally, what do you think about the U.S. current um, economic engagement of the region? Well, uh, for us, uh, we, we would like to see really. Um, this uh, so-called trade war between the United States and China be resolved uh, as soon as possible. Um, we see that, um, in our view, it is something that probably was bound to happen. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of issues between China and the United States on, the, on trade, and again, following the, uh, the rules-based type of uh, uh, system. But um, it's important that this, this trade uh, war uh, must uh, come to an end at the soonest possible time so that the, we can work together in making the ASEAN region, because obviously we have uh, uh, economic relations, the ASEAN has a very strong relations with uh, China, and uh, having this trade war uh, sooner than later will, will probably uh, affect us, uh, which it already is, as a matter of fact. Uh, there could be some fallouts, like um, maybe there are some American companies that are moving out of China and going into Vietnam or the Philippines, or maybe even in Singapore and other parts of the world, you know, parts of Asia. But at the end of the day, this, this, this economic uh, situation between the United States and China uh, hopefully will, will be resolved soon. And what about on the positive, more proactive side? Where is the U.S. on that, in your opinion, say like a bilateral agreement with 
Philippines or or reengaging the region in a um, in a multilateral way. Do you how do you judge that currently? Well, the ASEAN um, economy we're uh, it's a 2.4 trillion economy, and then and obviously it's a, it's it's this now the fifth or uh, the fourth largest uh, or the third largest economy in, in the world, and so. It is beneficial for both the United States and the SAN to have uh, a very good economic uh, relationship. Uh, and so I think that uh, uh, the way we see it is that um, we have to have a continuing relationship uh, between uh, SAN and the United States and China, uh, again, uh, because they're part of the Asian region, uh, so that we can... Um, all prosper and, and have the same kind of uh, vision that we have for our economies. Um, this ASEAN leaders, when they endorsed the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, there were four key points that they wanted to look at cooperation. Maritime cooperation, which seems obvious in the region. The connectivity, which is really an economic conversation around getting better connectivity in the region. The sustainable development goals, largely economic conversation and other areas of economic conversation, smart cities and things like that. So three of the four areas in which they are interested in looking at this ASEAN Africa Indo-Pacific are really economic. And we'd like to see the U.S. find its role in that as well. There have been a number of things that the administration and Congress has done. The Build Act came out, and that's put some infrastructure, focus on infrastructure. But I don't think in many ways they've really sort of completely focused on Southeast Asia as an economic partner. It's, it's a matter of priorities, and I, the administration's first priority was obviously to deal with bilateral trade deficits, and the largest bilateral trade deficit is with China, and that's taken up a lot of time for USTR. Then they're looking at other free trade agreements, say with Japan, maybe with the Philippines, maybe with Vietnam, looking at the EU. That Southeast Asia as a group does not feature that prominently. Obviously, the first thing they did when they came into office was step away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The remaining members of the TPP, uh, the, now we call it the CPTPP, or the TPP-11, under Japan's leadership actually went ahead, and we've put that into force already. So it's been ratified by a number of countries. It came into force earlier this year. So we are carrying on our own processes of economic integration. The, the other thing that the, the ASEAN leaders spoke about over the weekend was reinforcing the urgency to get the RCEP done, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. We're almost there. There's one or two countries that have just had elections that need to sort of recommit to this. We were hoping to be able to do this under Singapore's chairmanship of ASEAN last year. Now the Thais are hoping to do it, and plan to do it by the end of this year to get that going. So the region is focused on economic cooperation. The U.S. is not part of RCEP. The U.S. is not part of CPTPP. There are the bilateral engagements that the U.S. is doing with their partners. How can we get the U.S. I think it's a, it's a valid question. How do we get the U.S. back into this multilateral framework? Whether it is globally in the WTO, whether it is regionally, because the region does look at economic cooperation, economic integration as really the key to future success, of the key of future peace and stability coming around that. It is one thing to have a strong military presence. It's also quite important to have a very uh, innovative and entrepreneurial economic presence as well. Is, is there the bandwidth in the region to handle a new big initiative from the United States? You've got RCEP, you mentioned. You've got CPTPP, a new, new entrance into that. You have maybe, uh, on the occasion of finally uh, settling the EU-Vietnam agreement, 
they mentioned the possibility of the EU ASEAN agreement. So there's some some more taxing of bureaucrats and leadership's uh, time. Do you, does the region have the bandwidth? If the United States came tomorrow and said, we want to join CPTPP or we want a US ASEAN trade agreement, is it a priority for the region? Yes, we have the bandwidth. We put everything else aside for the oh, US. Okay, okay. Well, that's, that's I have no doubt about that. I mean, yes, we do have the bandwidth. And in some, it may not necessarily involve all 10 ASEAN. For example, the TPP was four uh, countries that pre-selected themselves, Vietnam, Brunei, Singapore, and Malaysia, so going ahead, leaving a roadmap behind for others to come behind. So some things may not necessarily involve all 10. But I think if the US came tomorrow and said, we want to do something, we will clear the decks and make sure that there's a very strong response, positive response to the U.S. No one will turn the U.S. away. Because I think that balance of the U.S. engagement in the region has to be both security and economic. That's what creates the balance. It cannot just be one-sided, only purely security. And so that's where I think there will be a very, very... If President Trump, if he goes to the uh, meetings in Bangkok later this year, says, I want to do something with ASEAN, I think he will find a very positive response to that. I couldn't agree more with Ambassador um, Mumpuri. Okay. That's exactly what we would like to see, that the United States comes to us and says we'd like to be part of this whole thing. Thank you. Well, with that, let me thank you again for joining us here today. It's terrific to have your perspective. Um, I hope to tap into it on a continuing basis, as I have for the last uh, 20 years. But going forward, I, I hope to hear more of your perspective on, on these issues, U.S. engagement in the region, economic and political security. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you.